Well, it's uh, good to be with you, with you if you're in the room, and also, of course, we're live streaming now, so with you if you're at home, or if you have just an amazing cell service plan and you're on a ski lift and figuring out that you can ski and follow Jesus. Um, for those of us, no, I'm not going to make any more comments on that, but welcome. <laughs> Um, before I, I, I kind of move into our new uh, teaching series this morning, I want to make a couple of comments. Uh, let's call them just a, a brief pastoral chat. Uh, I, and I want to talk uh, just very briefly about the content of our worship here at Westside Kings. Since the middle of last year, we've been on what I describe as an intentional journey to increase two particular things in our worship as we're now gathering again uh, in person and also online. And the two things we really wanted to intentionally sort of increase is the spiritual depth of our worship, but also our congregational participation together as community. Uh, YouTube services, uh, and Westside was not dissimilar to a whole host of churches across the world, but YouTube services are decidedly one way. You watch them, you're kind of, it's all the communication is happening in, in one direction. But I think if we're really honest with ourselves, church has been quite one di directional for a long time, and, and really the pandemic sort of just revealed this. So since the beginnings in around about the certain late 70s, early 1980s of this model of church known as the seeker-sensitive model, what, what, what we're beginning to notice now, and church historians are observing this, is church services have sort of narrowed in their content. So services used to be a time where there would be prayer and scripture and creeds and times of the Holy Spirit and songs and teaching and communion. Whereas if you kind of broadly just stopped at almost any evangelical church across the world now nowadays, you often find that predominantly the service is songs and sermon. So we've gone from a kind of multifaceted service to a very straightforward two parts. But significantly that shift has not only been a move to the service only having two parts, but we've seen increasingly silent congregations. So congregations are invited to watch the service rather than participate in the service. Now, personally, here, here's where I'm at. I'm a Pentecostal, right? Uh, and that, like, that's one of those statements where I now want to say a whole host of caveats to define what I mean like that. Um, I, I have this friend uh, who is a Mennonite, and we laugh, we share this joke together, where uh, I often say, I'm a Pentecostal. I said, you know, but I also, I also like, have a degree. And, um, and he says, oh, I'm a Mennonite, and I, and I have a truck. Um, and <laughs> because we're aware that all of our religious traditions have stereotypes to them. And the moment you hear somebody say something, you now go, oh, I know what you're like. And then we get to know actual people and realize we're all more complex than that. But, but I've been in Pentecostal churches since I was like two weeks old. It is my clan, I suppose, at some level. It's my family, and you know what they say about family. You know, you don't choose them, they, they choose you, right? But at the core of, of, of the Pentecostal movement are, are two confessions that I think get missed so often in the kind of negative press around what it is to be Pentecostal. And the two confessions that are important are this. Number one is that whenever we gather together as the church, Jesus is with us. He's with us and he's present in his spirit with us. And the other thing, and I think this is really important, is that we also confess that he's here in and through all of us. So it's not just the people that are in the pulpit or, or, or leading the worship, but, but Christ is present in all of our hearts. 
And that's not a relatively new statement to make. That's true of many traditions of the church. In fact, in Westside's short 26, 27 year history as a church, this sort of attitude's been really important to us. If you go to our website, Bob Osborne's words, and Bob is probably our, our longest serving pastor in, in Westside's history, uh, but Bob's words are still on our website. When we say this about our community, we are rooted in our time, place, and culture. From here, we embrace our connection to the historic faith of the church, a faith that is shared through the generations across denominational borders and divisions. We believe in the one people of God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We embrace the common center of Christian faith as our ideal, always growing in our understanding, always open to correction and change, and always learning our scriptural faith. So I'm a Pentecostal, but you might not be, and that's okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not what we're about as a community is saying, well, this is our denomination, and, and, and this is the pastor's denomination, and we've all got to now a, a, a form a, you know, a, a, and shape ourselves that way. Rather, what I want to confess is that for us as a community, what's important is the journey towards Jesus, that we follow his way and his love together. That's a really Pentecostal thing to say, it's also a really Anglican thing to say. It's also a very evangelical thing to say. And if you ask around, you'll notice that the Mennonites say the same thing. To be honest, I think that's at the heart of what it is to be a church community, is to say, let's, let's align ourselves with Jesus. And no matter what stream we originally come from, we're on this journey towards Jesus to grow in him together. And I would love it if whatever your background was, Westside felt like home for you. If your background is Pentecostal or Anglican or Evangelical, or if you actually don't believe in God at all, I would love you to feel that here is a safe place to come and journey towards Jesus with us. And I think if we can lean into that broad confession of our faith to see the beauty of the diversity in the old, but also in the new and also in the different, I think if we can refine our voices again so that together when we gather, we are an expression of the church, a community of people where God's spirit is knitting us together for the sake of the world into unity. So I'm gonna talk about this more over coming months, but I just felt it was important just to chat about briefly, because I want you to understand some of the reasons why we've made some of the changes we, we have made just in our gathering space together. And what I'd invite you to do is to hold on to these two things. Firstly, that we, we do swim in a deep stream of church history, and all of these streams and traditions have beauty to them. So let's swim together, not as spectators, but as participants in the beauty of God's spirit working in us. And secondly, I just want to invite you to this. Maybe things are a little different. Maybe some aspects of the service are not what you're used to. Maybe participating doesn't feel normal. But here's what I invite you to do. Just try it. Just pray the prayers alongside us. Respond in the Psalms, say the creed, sing the songs, and just see if it creates space in your heart for God's spirit to work with you. Because when we all gather, as beautiful as we are all together, we are confessing that Jesus is with us, he's with us individually, and he's with us as a people. So, so the, the, you're always welcome to reach out and ask more questions about that, please do, but I'm hoping that just helps explain a little bit of the journey that we're on together. Is that okay? I said we're starting a new series for February, and we are doing. I'm going to call this series for the, for the next four weeks The Cost of Privilege. And I want to start with a proverbial quote that you may know. The quote is simply this. For everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. From the one to whom much has been entrusted, 
even more will be demanded. If I put you on the spot and said, who said that? I'd love to know where you went first. And generally spot checking people, here are the three most common answers you get. Spider-Man, John F. Kennedy, or Jesus. But as a pastor, whenever you ask anyone a question and say who said it, people always answer Jesus because they know it's safe and if it's wrong, you look godly. So, uh, so <laughs> if you're thinking Spider-Man, it's because in the Spider-Man movies, there is this quote, with great power comes great responsibility. A quote that finds its way through history from, from the story of the sword of Damocles, but has resonance with this idea of the quote that we just gave. If you think, wait a minute, I'm sure I heard John Kennedy say that. It's because he did say that. But he was saying it because Jesus said it first. <laughs> now, to whom much is given, much is required. Let's talk about that quote for a second. Uh, I've called the series The Cost of Privilege, and I understand that the word privilege, it's, it's become a very triggering word in our society at the moment. Some people use it in a very condemnatory way, some people hear it and immediately shut down because they feel attacked. But Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. The world that Jesus lived in was one in which goods, services, rights, and protections were not fairly distributed. And like our world, in Jesus' world, there were supporting mythologies that defended how things were distributed. But a very brief assessment of Jesus' world would tell you that how people talked about how things were distributed and how they actually were, were very different. The narratives of defense didn't sort of hold weight. And the same is kind of true in our world. The stories that we tell as to how we end up where we end up, the stories that we tell as to how we got what we got, are often not as straightforward as the way we tell them. There's more complexities to them. If you actually look closely at our world, we often actually treat ourselves and each other as if the logics of karma or fairy tales, namely that good things happen to good people, therefore if we have privileges, it's because we earned them. And that's the sort of story we like to tell in the contemporary world. But we should pay attention to Jesus' quote, and perhaps if you have the time, read the parable that leads up to the quote. Because what Jesus does is really interesting. Jesus builds from a basic assumption that the world doesn't work fairly. Jesus would reject the notion that good things happen to good people and that's just how it works. Jesus would say, if you actually look at how things work, you kind of see that that's not what's happening. Jesus recognizes that some people have more than others. Jesus recognizes, if I can use the triggering word, that some people have privilege and some people don't. And now, to be clear, Having privilege doesn't mean your life is easy. Having privilege doesn't mean that everything's gone straightforward for you. It just means that you potentially have fewer barriers than some others might have. But what's interesting about Jesus when he talks about this is that the question he asks, actually the question the whole Bible asks, isn't whether or not privilege exists. The Bible doesn't get drawn into a question of, are there privileged people, are they not privileged people? Is there privilege, is there not? And think about it for a second. The Bible, the Bible is a story of some slaves and some nomads and some exiles and some immigrants. From Abraham, the Exodus story, right through to the spread of the church, the biblical people almost permanently live under the shadow of some nation, organization, or people who have more privileges than they do. So the biblical question 
is not, does privilege exist? Jesus, actually, when he comes to this issue, he inverts the whole question. Instead of getting lost in a discussion about the ethics of privilege, he instead, throughout his whole ministry, asks this question. What would it look like to use your privilege for the kingdom of God? What would it look like to turn things around? Instead of arguing about who and where and what, what are we actually going to do? Jesus' perspective on privilege doesn't ask, did you deserve it? doesn't ask, have you worked hard and earned it? Jesus asks, what are you going to do with what you've got? To whom much is given, he says, much is required. So I wonder if the way of the church is to sort of release the pressure valve around the language of privilege and accept that we actually have privileges. And they all might be different from all of us, and we all have different hurdles to, to handle. And some of us are very fortunate, whereas others perhaps are not. And there's complexities to how we ended up where we got to at this exact moment. But this is where we are. What if we rather took heed of Jesus' question and said, what are we going to do? Now, this is really easy to say, but it's much, much harder to manage. But I do think that healthy disciples of Jesus wrestle with their privilege. Two texts which I think reflect some of the formational aims of Scripture on this are Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, possibly familiar to you. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So notice, the question is simply, what does God want of humans? Not where you rank on a scale, but what does God want of us is justice, mercy, and humility. Another text in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 7 that you've heard me talk about before potentially, where Jeremiah writing to exiled people, people who don't feel privileged at all, and I think we might suggest are not privileged. Jeremiah calls them and says, also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This idea of peace and prosperity is the Hebrew idea of shalom, of wholeness. That Jeremiah is saying to the people, even though we find ourselves in a situation that might be slightly out of our control, what are we going to do in this place? And this pattern is set deep in the narrative of the Bible. The biblical story asks people who don't feel privileged to act towards justice and righteousness, peace and wholeness to defend the weak, protect the vulnerable, uphold the marginalized. This is God's mission. And whether it's from the Torah teaching the, the Israelites to care for the foreigners, through to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, showing that the way of the church, the body of the Christ, is to prioritize the vulnerable and the ignored. Ultimately, the biblical approach is to ask us to think differently, not just about our privilege and our sin, but what's involved and available to us with the privileges that we have. And that's what I want to talk about throughout February. We're going to explore the biblical story where we invite and encounter characters and situations in the Bible where people who have privilege of some form are able to identify that, repent of the problems connected to it, and when necessary, utilize what I think is a mature approach to the subject, which is to take their privilege and leverage it towards justice and righteousness, like the mission of God calls us to. Dominic Gilliard's uh, book, Subversive Witness, engages in some of the biblical narratives that we'll uh, use throughout this series. And, and he just simply says this, those with privilege have the authority to tell 
alter and erase history. And what we do as we dive into the biblical story is encounter people who chose to alter it, who chose to change things as a result of where they found themselves. And to do that today, I want to talk very briefly about Esther. The book of Esther is the 17th book of the Old Testament. It's just before the book of Job and Psalms. So if you open your Bible, if you're using a paper Bible and you can't find Esther, but you almost always open your Bible and you're in the Psalms, right? It just kind of seems to be what happens. Just go left and you'll find yourself in Esther eventually. This is a story that kind of deserves a series all to itself, and perhaps we'll do that one day. Esther's kind of unknown to a lot of us within church tradition because we tell the story of Esther a lot in Sunday school and children's church, but then don't talk about it so much uh, when we all become adults, which is strange because this is not a kid's book. And I don't know how it happens, but this is a common tradition in church. Maybe you've been to Sunday school and you remember that. But all of the deeply scary stories in the Bible, those are the ones we tell the kids. Right? And, uh, uh, you know, it's like, and then there was a whale and it ate the man. And then there was an army and everybody got killed. And then the buildings fell down. And we go, those all sound like kids' stories. Let's tell them in Sunday school. The book of Esther is a story that deals with issues of racism, toxic masculinity, sexual commodification, and genocide. And so, like, if you're hearing that list and thinking, that does sound like it's good for the kids, then let me just say, our children's department do need volunteers, and we would love your help. Um, <laughs> the story of Esther is set around the Persian king Xerxes, who decides to hold a six-month-long party in his honor, in which he wants to show up off his power. In the process of this big party, he somewhat misogynistically decides that he will ask his queen to come and attend the party. And the Bible just says, show off her beauty. I'll let you read between the lines to what that means. But it's not good. The queen refuses. And the net result is the king exiles and banishes the queen from the nation. The decision is made regarding the queen that she be banished as a lesson to remind all women to respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. So yeah, this is problematic, right? <laughs> this, and now what's interesting is the Bible doesn't entirely comment explicitly on this, but you need to pay attention. It's the Persian king that's saying that. And, and this story is going to bring a woman into the narrative who's going to change things. So the Bible's offering you an implicit commentary that this patriarchal and abusive king is not exhibiting behavior that is acceptable. How women are treated, respected, and protected is a piece of biblical justice. And a patriarchal, male-dominated society, the justice of God calls for women to be treated equally, respectfully, and appropriately. However, this is ancient Persia, and this isn't going to happen overnight. So the predatory Xerxes decides he needs a new queen. And his process of getting a new queen is to essentially abduct and traffic young girls from across the 127 provinces of his kingdom so that they might, and the Bible again leaves it for you to figure this out, so that they might entertain and satisfy him. Whoever pleased him most would be given the title queen. <clears throat> this story is toxic whatever way you look at it. At this point, we meet a man called Mordecai. Mordecai looks after his orphaned cousin, and his orphaned cousin is, is a girl who becomes known as Esther. 
They're an exiled Jewish family, and when Esther is taken to be part of this process of the king, they change her name just to keep her Jewishness hidden in that context. The word Esther literally means hidden. And she's taken beyond Mordecai's control into what they call a year of preparation before her night with the king. This is not a good story, no matter what version of the children's Bible you read in first. Despite the trauma of the situation, it transpires that Esther becomes Xerxes' queen. So Mordecai stays nearby and kind of keeps watch over his cousin to the best of his ability. And in the process of kind of hanging around the king's palace, he discovers a plot to try and overthrow the king. And therefore, Mordecai ends up saving the king's life. Some irony to the story going on there. Somehow, he saves the king's life and is never rewarded or honored for this. But instead, the king promotes this new right-hand man called Haman. And Haman is deeply anti-Semitic. He really doesn't like Jewish people. The tension between Haman and Mordecai, and this just sounds like a Lord of the Rings story with all of these names, doesn't it? Like, these names are, 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 are brilliantly expressive. Uh, Haman and Mordecai have this tension to the extent that Haman decides he's going to kill Mordecai. But as he's about to kill Mordecai, he discovers that Mordecai is Jewish. And the text picks this up here in verse 6 of chapter 3. The tension between Haman and Mordecai works its way out here. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So then, what Haman then does is he sort of doubles down on this kind of propaganda and hate speech, which would be worthy of the Nazis, to be honest with you, and Haman convinces the king that all Jews are criminals and threats to their society, so the king approves of and funds genocide against God's people. Look at the text here. Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Haman hates Jewish people so much that he's going to partly fund this genocide. But the king took his signet ring off from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. And here develops the tension of the plot of this story of Esther. The king has now funded a genocide unknowingly against his own queen's people. Esther's now been queen for about eight years. The king doesn't know that she's Jewish, and she's kind of begun to adapt to the privilege of royal life. But Mordecai hears about this, and he, and he dresses in the clothes of lament. He tears his robes and wails at this situation. And interestingly, Esther seems to be nervous about this, perhaps wondering that Mordecai is going to kind of out the fact that they have a connection, and his wailing for this will expose that she too is Jewish. So she encourages him to get dressed again properly and be silent and sort of quieten down the whole situation. And this then leads to the pinnacle point of the story of Esther. The one bit that perhaps, if you've heard Esther quoted, it's probably this. Mordecai and his cousin, the queen, correspond between one another. And he beseeches Esther, like, go to the king and get this genocide stopped. But Esther is afraid of what that will, ha what that will cause happen to her, because her, her own situation and her own life are going to be 
at risk. And so Mordecai responds this way to Esther in chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. This appears to be the question asked to those of us who find ourselves in a moment of privilege. Is it possible that we find ourselves at this particular moment of history with these particular privileges and that we might forget to ask the question, why? Like Esther had unique privileges, unlike anyone else. And we too find ourselves with immense privileges. Just think for a moment about comparatively about our wealth, our health, our prosperity, if we're just even sat in this room right now and compared to the rest of the world. I mean, just before Christmas, I got my third shot of a vaccine that... <laughs> as controversial as these things are to talk about, but there's a huge chunk of the world haven't even had their first opportunity yet. Our privilege might not always be in front of us because we're so used to the way the life works, but we have immense privileges in our country. Why, asks Mordecai, do you think God's put you here at this particular moment in this particular place? And I think it's a great question for us to ask, even though there's no easy answers to it. But, but we should think about, if God's put me here, what's the cost? We have the privilege. Jesus said, much has been given, but what is the cost? Jesus says, much will be required. Of course, a question like this probably shouldn't surprise us as Christians. Sacrificial love is at the basis of the Christian economy. We're called in Philippians chapter 2 to model Jesus who laid aside the majesty of heaven. Could you say the privilege of heaven? That he laid aside that to come and to rescue us. The fruits of God's justice are found in, in this sacrificial loving process. So Esther, she takes on the privilege uh, that she has and she chooses to pursue justice from the king. And this is a dangerous journey for her because this king has a very low ethical bar. So she, what she does is she hosts a series of parties and invites Xerxes and Haman. And during the time, in this beautiful moment of biblical irony, the king remembers during this party that, hey, you know, Mordecai saved my life a little while ago and we never did anything for him. So the king then decides, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask Haman, what should we do for Mordecai? But in the beauty of the irony of this story, Haman is on his way to come and see the king to ask the king if he can go kill Mordecai, right? Like this is like Disney levels of irony. So I'm going to ask Haman what I should do to honor Mordecai. And, and, Mordecai, <laughs> and Haman's like, let's go kill Mordecai. I'll get the king's permission. So they meet in the middle. And in this slice of what I can only describe as delightful biblical irony, this is what the story does. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head, and then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. 
Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, and do not neglect anything you have recommended. <laughs> so, not only this, but off the back of this situation then, Esther reveals the severity of the genocide situation to the king, who recants his decree and the Jewish people are rescued. Esther leverages her privilege for a redemptive goal. She risks her own comfort to hope and ensure that justice happens. Gilead says this in his book, when we choose to leverage privilege for the furtherance of the kingdom and the good of our neighbors, we become instruments of peace that God uniquely uses to induce freedom and justice for our fractured world. Esther ultimately models the way of Jesus. She takes what she's been given and she navigates it sacrificially and selflessly to align herself with the oppressed. I'm going to invite Phil, I'm going to invite Phil to join me uh, here for a moment. I said at the start that, I, that I, want to, I want to increase the voice of our congregation. And, and I think one thing that I noticed that this is very one-sided is often sermons, <laughs> that one person talks and everybody else listens. So I asked Phil to sit and listen and then kind of jump up just as we can near the end of the sermon with a few questions. And questions really around three, uh, three things. Three things begin with the letter C. I did say I was a Pentecostal. And uh, there is a, I want to ask Phil to think about where in the teaching was some clarity brought? What in the teaching is perhaps confusing? And, and what are the points of conflict in a teaching like this? So Phil, thanks for uh, agreeing to put me through this. <laughs> That's great. Um, you know, I think... One of the things that I appreciated and in terms of clarity is moving the word privilege outside of the political realm mm -hmm. and situating it in the mouth of Jesus, mm -hmm. right? Who says, uh, to whom much is given, much is required. And so to me, it seemed like this moved um, this whole conversation mm -hmm. outside of like the peripheral arguments mm -hmm. and really got to the heart of the matter. Um, and. As we're, as you're teaching on that, I'm kind of th thinking like, is there a way that our arguments, and this is, can be true on both sides, are actually just a way of avoiding um, the demands of the gospel, uh, that maybe something actually is required of us? And, uh, and I really like that you heard that, because you know when you're sort of putting something, particularly, I know that you use the word privilege, and immediately... It has so much tension around it. It is a triggering term. But, but part of the, the desire to want to talk about that is I think what you're asking there is what I, th I think I'm seeing happen. That, well, where do you stand on the question of privilege? And then, then that debate draws a line. And I w if I could be critical of both sides, which I think is often the kingdom way, no one's really doing things right then as a result of that. And sometimes the ability to go, well, I don't even believe in all that, allows me to walk away from the actual problem, whereas there's oppressed peoples who need solidarity, who need support. So, so I think that is a good question to ask, is that am I engaged sometimes in debates as a way of just not dealing with what is a real question because I don't like how it's being framed? If that yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing you said, just in terms of... Uh, of a place where confusion could potentially set in mm. is you talked about karma, you talked about fairness, and uh, how the world's not fair. Mm. But then I think there's assumptions that we make that, uh, that God is fair. Mm. And I'm wondering if fairness is even a category for properly understanding God and mm. the kingdom, for example. 
I think, uh, so I read a piece just last week actually about fairy tales, and I made a brief reference to fairy tales at the very, very start. Mm. Modern fairy tales, like the sort of stuff you get in a Disney movie, although even Disney are beginning to work with this, but your classic kind of fairy tale works under the premise that good things happen to good people. Right? If you actually read fairy tales from like the early 1800s, they're all terrifying. I don't know if you've noticed this, like stories like Jack and the Beanstalk, Hansel and Gretel. Jack and the Beanstalk, just brief heads up, you know, there's a kid, he grows a plant, he climbs up into a giant's kingdom, kills the giant, robs all his stuff, and lives happily ever after. Um, you know, like there's a moral story we want to tell our children, right? And, um, and what Jack and the Beanstalk teaches you is the world has bad people in it, and it doesn't always end fairly, which you don't learn that from the Disney fairy tales. Yeah. But what what they're beginning to notice is that when they assess children, children prefer Jack and the Beanstalk. Because if you grow up with the narrative that good things happen to good people and you're being bullied at school, <laughs> then what does that say about you? Well, that implies that maybe you're not a good person and therefore maybe, you, and we get caught in these spirals. I think the same thing happens. Once we decide that God is fair, and I do believe God is just and fair and loving, but the world is not. But of course, the biblical comment is the world is broken and the world doesn't have, you know, everything together. But here's what I notice happens. If we think God is fair and the world works fair, when unfair things happen to us, we think we've deserved it. When unfair things happen to other people, we assume they've deserved it. And it allows us to step back from pursuing wholeness. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Absolutely. I guess the final question then. Um, you know, you mentioned Esther in this book and her name meaning hidden. Um, I, what I find fascinating about this book, A, is that hardly anybody ever teaches it well. Um, you did, don't get me wrong. Uh, <laughs> I was just wondering where this was going there. <laughs> but uh, Hardly you know, anybody they, teaches this well, and that continues. <laughs> yeah. Like, you should be an Esther. No, hopefully nobody has to be an Esther. Yeah. Um, you know, she's, she's abducted, essentially. Mm. Um, placed in this really uh, horrific situation, mm. does become the queen, but like in the worst possible way. Yes. Um, what, what's fascinating about this book to me is, is um, her name means hidden, but God is hidden in this book. Yeah. God is mentioned nowhere in this yeah. book. And so I'm curious then um, as to how, just to me, it's this idea of like the self-made man, the self-made mm. person, right? Where it's... Um, well, hey, you didn't. You don't understand. And anytime you engage in this question of privilege, this I find that this comes up. Mm -hmm. um, how, like, you don't understand what I went through mm -hmm. to get to the place that I am. Mm -hmm. And God seems to be kind of hidden from that picture completely, um, which then can kind of lend to an excuse, which frankly would feel like, well, yeah, you have a good excuse. But here, you know, you have the relative going. Do you think, like, yeah. do you think you can get away with this too? No, not a chance. You know, I just, can, can you weigh into that a bit? Yeah, I mean, great, great observations. And I, I feel like at some level, I mean, I think Esther's a literary piece of genius writing. Like I said at the start, you know, it never comes out and says, by the way, this king's awful the way he treats women. It just trusts you as a reader to realize that I'm showing you all the right things so you can reach this conclusion yourself. And like, likewise, I mean, God is present in the story, but never mentioned in the story. And isn't that all of our lives, right? That, that you might not hear from God. You might not feel the strong sense of God. And sometimes we feel so bad about our lives because, you know, we've got that friend that feels like, oh, I feel like God told me this and God's leading me here. And we might be going, man, God's not leading me anywhere. <laughs> right? um, 
Esther is, an, is a story that shows us that you can still lead in the way of God in your own life, even when he appears to be absent. But I, and, and, and the painful aspect of the story, but welcome to life, is that Esther had a terrible story to get where she'd got to, but that didn't give her a pass. God still was calling her to solidarity. So, you know, have you worked hard to get what you've got? Have you not worked hard to get what you've got? I feel like Jesus' question, but you have much. So how you got the much isn't the question Jesus seems to ask. He seems to go, well, what are you going to do with it now? Which I think is what Mordecai is asking Esther. Um, this question from, uh, from Drew Hart in, in his book about, uh, called uh, Who Will Be a Witness, he says this, we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. Your calling isn't necessarily to be a great debater, but it is to be a faithful witness, which requires prophetic intervention in the face of untruths about, God, about people made in the image of God. And so, whatever the backstory is, you find yourself in a particular place. Well, what can I do? What can I bring to this story? And I feel like what Hart's saying here resonates with the scriptural story as well. Will you do what you're able to do? Thanks so much, Phil, for, for the questions. And th this sort of thought leads us then into some questions on where I want to land our teaching th this morning. Um, what do we do when things are tough? Well, if you actually look closely at the story of Esther and read it through slowly in your own time, you'll notice that the catalyst for change is when Mordecai starts to lament. He tears his clothes and he starts to wail. He says, this is bad, right? This is not the way things should be. And I feel like there's a little lesson for us in all that, that that's where our stories should start. How do we find solidarity with people who are oppressed? We have to recognize it. We have to see it. And we have to decide that it's upsetting and that it requires lament from us. And lament can take many, many forms. Lament comes in modern days in the form of vigils, peaceful marches perhaps, concerts, writing, art, speeches. They can all be lament. And I don't know if you've noticed this, they can also be uncomfortable. If you ever find yourself in the presence of people lamenting, even if it's just a piece of art in a museum that, that kind of speaks to the pain, it can be awkward and uncomfortable. And we feel like Esther. We're like, well, just Mordecai, put your clothes back on and, and be quiet. You're making a scene. We don't always want to come to terms with the ugliness of the situation we find ourselves in. Sun Chan Ra, in his book, Prophetic Lament, says this, lament calls for an authentic encounter with the truth and challenges privilege because privilege would hide the truth that creates discomfort. See, I think what the story of Esther shows us, and this is consistent with the Bible, I think, that, that the first step towards justice and solidarity is acknowledgement. And acknowledgement is uncomfortable, and it requires lament. And lament isn't something we've been great at in our church story. We prefer happiness and joy, but there are times where we're called to lament where we grieve about the injustices of our world, we grieve about the oppressions that we see, and we grieve. I think God's spirit grieves in us when the world is not as we know God imagines it could be, when the world is not reflecting the glory of God. So lament created space for Esther to hear the cry and eventually begin her sacrificial journey to seek the way of justice and fight solidarity with their own people. Why don't you stand with me? for a blessing as we end this morning. In scripture, lament is encouraged because it has immense power of reorientation. 
and transformation. It's the cry of the world and the oppressed that draws God into action and is there to invite us into action. Don't forget, that's the story of the cross. The cross in all of its pain and suffering and lament is also the mechanism through which God saves all of us. So may you hear this story of Esther. May you feel the call of Jesus that says you have much, but much is also required because of the much we have. And may God in his spirit guide us and direct us through lament, through acknowledgement, through just opening our eyes and being aware that the world is not as it should be. And perhaps, just perhaps, God is calling us to act and do something about it. And may God's grace and peace be with you this week. Amen and amen. Thank you.